Well, good morning, Southern Cross, and anybody else who might be listening. Uh, This is the first time we're doing this, airing our sermons uh, online in video format like this. Uh, And I'm not going to lie, this is pretty weird. Uh, Talking to my bookshelf is kind of strange, but I hope that uh, you'll bear with me as I kind of work through this. I kind of feel like I drew the short straw here, kind of having to be the first person to do this. But uh, I don't know, you can take that up with Jason for me. We're going to be spending the next two weeks thinking about the Ten Commandments. We're going to be looking at Exodus 20 and really seeing what what they have to say, what that has to say to us. And I do realize that that seems a little bit strange. I do realize that in a time like this, the Ten Commandments probably isn't the place that all of us are rushing to, to be like, how do we deal with a global crisis? In light of COVID-19, uh, I don't think people are rushing to the Ten Commandments to see what to do. Now, I'm not sure what you think about the Ten Commandments. Many Christians take them to be the standard for how we live our lives. Uh, Entire books have been written on how they apply to us today, how we should read them in light of Jesus' teaching. Nearly my entire ethics course in my first year at college was basically just a long, slow walk through the Ten Commandments. But with all the talk that there is about the Ten Commandments, it seems that we easily forget that it has a context of its own. It was written to a people very different to us, into a world that's very different from our own. Uh, Not only that, it comes at a particular point in a story, a story that began with a people enslaved in Egypt. Uh, The story of the first part of Exodus is about God rescuing the Israelites from slavery. And he did that by sending 10 plagues. In doing so, God was dealing with the Egyptians whom the the Israelites were enslaved to. But he was doing more than that. He was actually taking on the gods of Egypt. So we read in Exodus 12 verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on on that night, uh, talking about the last plague where uh, the angel of death passes through uh, and takes the lives of the firstborns of all those who didn't put the blood of the lamb on uh, the doorposts. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both male, uh, both people and animals. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. Now, it's worth pausing here to just think about that. Uh, I think that'll come across quite weird to a lot of us. We don't tend to think about there being many gods. Um, but the people in the ancient Near East, people in the time that Exodus was, the Exodus events were happening, they were all pretty much polytheists. They did believe in many gods. Uh, and usually these gods were kind of mixed in with the, the forces of nature, uh, various parts of the cosmos. So you had the sun god, who generally was pretty important. You had gods who were in charge of fertility uh, and Uh, in charge of crops and agriculture, and you'd have gods in charge of various places. And they all worked to keep the cosmos running, uh, each in charge of their own thing. But God takes on the gods of Egypt to show that they're not in control, that he's in control. He did this to show the Egyptians who's in charge, He did this to show the surrounding nations who's in charge. And he did this to show his own people uh, who's in charge. 
So God brought the Israelites up out of Egypt and brought them in uh, and brought them to Mount Sinai, where he established his covenant with them. So in Exodus 19, we read, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As his people, God expects the Israelites to live a certain way, to live out their identity as his treasured possession. That's what we'll be looking at in uh, chapter 20 over the next few weeks. In the Ten Commandments, we get the beginnings of what it looks like to be God's covenant people. Uh, And we're going to be thinking together about what that means in the middle of a global crisis. What I'm hoping we'll see is that when we get to grips with what the Ten Commandments are saying in their ancient Near Eastern context, in the context that the Israelites themselves will have understood it, it actually has a lot more to say to our present crisis than we might have initially realized. So we're going to read the passage together, uh, and then we'll uh, launch into to uh, take a look at what it's what it's saying to us. They kind of break into two parts. We've got the first four commands, which we'll be looking at this morning, which talk about uh, people's relationship with God. So we're thinking about the the words about God this morning. And then next week, we'll be thinking about uh, words about society, uh, how the people are meant to relate with each other. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll read the first 11 verses. God spoke all these words. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. So we're looking at the first four commands, and the first one is about loyalty to Yahweh alone. The first command says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's usually explained in terms of priorities, and I think that's right. Uh, Nothing should be more important to us than God. But when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, we shouldn't take that in terms of order, you know, first, second, third, so on. But in terms of location, you shall have no other gods in front of me, or you shall have no other gods in my presence. 
it didn't Im immediately occur to me, but I think that makes the, the first command a whole lot more forceful. So John Calvin, a famous dead guy, he explains it this way. The phrase before my face uh, makes the offense more heinous because God is provoked to jealousy as often as we substitute our own inventions in place of him. This is like the shameless woman who brings in an adulterer before her husband's very eyes, only to vex his mind the more. That's what happens when anything takes the place in our hearts where God should be. Augustine says, he loves thee too little who loves anything beside thee that is not for the sake of thee. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe in light of the present crisis, it's security or safety. Now, it's worth saying that none of these are bad things. But I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says that you can't serve two masters, that you can't love God and money or God and comfort or God and security, God and fill in the blank for yourself, whatever it is that takes your heart captive. If you're so focused on money, if you're so focused on comfort and, and all those things, when it becomes your driving force, then it's no longer God who you're serving. The, Ten the first of the Ten Commandments tells us that God won't have any competition. You will have no other gods in my presence. Now, what would that have meant for the Israelites? Remember, they uh, lived in a time very different to our own, in a world very different to our own. There are people very different from us. Think about how they would have seen the world around them. Think about what we said earlier. Think about how they would have thought about the gods. For them, it wouldn't have just been one God, but many gods. Remember, they lived in a world of polytheists all around them, and chances are that would have influenced the way that they might have thought. So when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, the Israelites probably would have assumed that he was talking about other gods. The first command doesn't deny the existence of other gods. Rather, it's saying that they have no place in God's kingdom. Now, this probably would have been quite weird to them. And not for, the re not for the reasons that we might think. Remember that for the surrounding nations, different gods were in charge of different parts of the world. Um, so the question would have been, how could one god possibly take care of everything by himself? Imagine the CEO of your company, or if you're the CEO of your company, imagine that you go around doing everybody else's work. Imagine you go to every office doing their admin for them, sorting out their bookshelves, uh, arranging their desks. Imagine you had to chair every single meeting that, that went on in, in a massive company. Uh, imagine that you went around sweeping the floors and cleaning the toilets. Every job to keep the place running became your responsibility. It's crazy, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. That's probably how they would have thought about uh, one God being in charge of everything. But that's exactly the point. God doesn't need other gods. God doesn't need a staff team. 
He doesn't uh, need help. John Walton, an Old Testament scholar, he puts it this way. The first of the Ten Commands uh, insists not that the other gods are non-existent, but that they are powerless. It disenfranchises them. It does not simply say that they should not be worshipped. It leaves them with no status worthy of worship. What we can take from the first command isn't that isn't just that we shouldn't serve other gods, whatever they might be to us. It's that they actually aren't worth worshipping. They don't have anything to offer us. What we can take from the first command is that God is sovereign over everything. Everything. Even COVID-19. Maybe the reason so many people are panic buying. Maybe the reason there's such hysteria is because people have another God. And maybe it's because, or maybe it's because they underestimate just how powerful Yahweh really is. Now, I'm not saying do nothing. Please don't hear me say do nothing. Please don't say me, please don't hear me saying don't prepare. But know who you serve. And know that he's in control. In the words of Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. The second command is about making images. Now, the difference isn't immediately obvious. At least it wasn't to me when I was growing up. The first command seems to be about idolatry. The second command seems to be about idolatry. The difference, as far as I can see, is that where the first command is talking about who we worship, the second command is talking about how we're meant to worship. But uh, in the way that that works out, it does sort of dovetail with the first command. Both of them are about worship, um, and both of them actually paint us a picture of Yahweh uh, being worthy of worship. Typically, the second command has been interpreted to mean that we shouldn't try to represent an infinite God by finite means. Uh, So John Calvin writes, The second commandment restrains our license from daring to subject God, who is incomprehensible, to our sense perceptions, or to represent him by any form. That then is usually extended to talk about Jesus as well. So I remember uh, some time ago, I was part of a Facebook group that was very passionate about this. They, if you posted a picture of the cover of a book that had Jesus on, um, on the cover, a picture of Jesus on the cover, uh, you had to scratch it out or otherwise you could be kicked out of the group. Any violation of this was, was called um, 2CV, second commandment violation. Now, when we remember that this was written to a people written in the ancient Near East, I think we get a slightly different picture. You see, uh, images of gods in the ancient Near East were probably statues for one, but they weren't just representations. It wasn't just a picture. It wasn't just uh, something to be looked at. They believed that a part of the god would come to live in that image in some way. The statue then became the God in some way so that uh, people would worship a statue, believing that statue to, to be their God. Uh, and through the statue, uh, that God would then communicate with the people. They would put clothes on it. They would bathe it. They would serve it supper. 
they would have to look after this statue because that was their God uh, as he was represented to them. But God is clear. He's not going to interact with his people in that way. God doesn't need to be clothed. He doesn't need to be bathed. He doesn't need to be fed. God has no needs. Nor will he be contained by anything made by human hands. Uh, He isn't like the gods of the nations around him. He won't be contained. He won't be limited to one place. And even when he does limit himself to one place in the person of Jesus, it's not in the same way that uh, the gods of the ancient Near East were uh, were being limited. Even when he does so, he does it on his terms and he doesn't do it because he has needs. He actually does it to answer our needs. When God limits himself in the person of Jesus, when he humbles himself even to death on a cross, it's actually for our needs. It's actually because uh, we need our sin to be dealt with and he comes and dies on a cross to do that for us. What the second commandment teaches us is that God can't be treated as if he needs anything. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. We depend on him, not the other way around. We read in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath. And all things. The third command is about using God's name. Uh, it's often been taken to be uh, to mean don't use God as a swear word. Again, I think the context helps us to understand this a little bit better. Somebody's name is bound up with their identity. I think we we get that from even just from the associations that we have with uh, uh, with different names. So when Leanne and I were deciding on, um, when Leanne and I had Ava, we'd actually already decided on a name while we were still dating. It was just one of those conversation starters, uh, you know, not even talking about if we have kids. It was just like, well, if you have kids one day, maybe with me, maybe not, probably, you know, whatever happens. It was uh, just what names do you like? Um, and we found pretty quickly that actually we both really love the name Ava. But there are also some names that we didn't agree on. For a boy, I like the name Thaddeus. Leanne doesn't, because in a series that she watched, there was a guy named Thaddeus who was apparently a bit of a pawpaw. So that kind of ruined the name for her. That's what she now associates with the name Thaddeus. When she thinks Thaddeus, that's kind of what she thinks. Now, names were uh, names are bound up with identity uh, in our culture. It's even more the case in the ancient Near East. Names were very important in the ancient Near East. The names of gods were often used in things like magic or exorcisms uh, to invoke or, or harness the power of that god by, by using their name. Uh, and sometimes, in fact, quite often to, to serve their own purposes, whether good or bad. The point of the third command is that God will have none of that. So John Walton again, the third command when read as ancient Near Eastern literature concerns how Yahweh's power or authority was not to be perceived among the Israelites. People were to respect it by refraining from attempts to control or misuse it. It was not to be thought of as as an efficacious symbol that could be used to pursue one's own self-interests. Now, 
for us, it's probably not magic that we're trying to do. We're probably not using God's name to cast a spell on somebody. That's also partly because our idea of magic is quite different to uh, magic in the ancient Near East, but we don't need to go into that right now. More likely, I think the way that we'd be tempted to use God's name is in influence or authority. What I think the third command has to say to us today is that we can't just do what we want and then rubber stamp it with God told me to. It's scary how in years gone by, so-called Christians would justify horrendous things like apartheid and then rubber stamp it with, well, it's in the Bible. But they think that the real problem is that we use God's word as a swear word. It's scary how we can justify something as horrendous as apartheid, but think that the real issue being addressed in the third command is cussing. We can't be horrible to people who are different to us and justify it by saying that God told me to. God's word won't be used like that. God's name won't be used like that. We might also think of what Jason said last week about how some are saying that COVID-19 is God's judgment on the world. You know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We don't know. And to be talking about God's name like that, uh, I think actually is doing more harm than good. We don't know the mind of God. Chances are it's just humans parading human ideas, rubber stamping it with God's name. The fourth command, and this is the last one that we're going to look at this morning, has to do with keeping the Sabbath. Now, the rabbit hole is deep on this one. It's probably, out of all the Ten Commandments, the weirdest to deal with as Christians today. Should we keep the Sabbath? Shouldn't we? I'm not going to answer any of those questions, uh, at least not in any sort of conclusive way. Uh, But I do think that there are some things that will be helpful for us to reflect on in this time. So verse eight, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you are to labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, the Sabbath was a permanent feature on the Israelites' uh, schedule. It was a, a permanent reminder of their constant dependence on God. It was a day that was set apart to be holy, set aside for them not to go about their day-to-day work uh, and to remember. What were they meant to remember? Well, the pattern of Sabbath was meant to point them back to creation. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In their own journey from Egypt, uh, the Israelites were being led by God to the promised land, to the, the place where they were meant to find rest. The Israelites were being, uh, the, the Sabbath was meant to be a reminder of that. A day built into the week uh, that gave them a little taste of what rest was meant to be like. Now, I remember one day when I was still studying at UCT, I got caught for close to an hour by two guys who uh, 
were trying to convince me that as Christ- that as Christians we must keep the Sabbath and it must be on a Saturday. Now, I think they were wrong. Um, I think we have good reasons to meet on Sundays rather, but actually on one level, the day is neither here nor there. What matters is that we are meeting together. What matters is that we've got this permanent feature in our schedules, part of the rhythm of our lives that continually points us back to Jesus, that continually points us to the rest that we find in Jesus. Uh, I don't think he says for no reason, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Part of what that means for Christians is that once a week we meet together as God's people for just that reason. The verse that I've heard quoted most over the past week is from Hebrews 10. Uh, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, that's been a difficult one to wrestle with. On one hand, we know that we shouldn't be meeting physically together, that it's dangerous for us to be in close proximity to each other. Uh, we know just how um, how devastating it's been for countries where the virus has spread out of control, places like Italy, places like China, uh, where people are basically on lockdown now um, because of just how uh, widespread the virus has become. And we don't want, we don't want to reach that point. We don't want to reach that point ourselves. And so it's right that we keep uh, away from each other, that we practice social distancing, that we take the measures that we can to prevent the virus from spreading because people's lives are at stake. But we know that uh, while it's right that we're not meeting face to face, the call to stop, the call not to stop meeting together doesn't become any less relevant. It just means that we need to be more creative. We need to be finding way. Uh, we need to be finding ways of encouraging each other, ways of uh, connecting, um, and not turning social distancing into isolation. We do still need to be connecting as God's people. We do still need to be encouraging each other. We do still need to be spurring one another on, one another on to love and good deeds. Now, friends, we serve an almighty God. We serve a God who is sovereign over all things. Uh, we serve a God who cannot be contained and who, who won't be manipulated and squeezed into our own uh, agendas. And especially now as we face this present crisis, together as God's people, let's keep our eyes fixed on him. Let's keep our eyes uh, fixed on the rest that we will enjoy with him. Let's worship him alone. Let's trust that he knows what he's doing. Because that, at least in part, is what it looks like to be God's people.